0: Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Colin Stewart will join us to discuss how to live in space. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, living on Earth is hard enough, but what about living in outer space? Well, in the new book, How to Live in Space, Everything You Need to Know for the Not-So-Distant Future, explores this issue for a general audience. The author is Mr. Colin Stewart. Mr. Stewart is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. There's also an asteroid, 15347. Colin Stewart is also named after him. And again, his new book is called How to Live in Space. And Mr. Stewart, we're very pleased to have you today on The Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me curious why you decided to put together a
1: book on how to live in space it's because i think things seem to be changing we're on the cusp of something quite big in that space travel is moving away from um, being solely government funded uh, and it's now moving towards being privately funded by by enterprises so in the not too distant future maybe even later this year or or early next year we'll have space tourists going into space in in a pretty regular fashion and so if it's not just the highly trained, but you and me that are going to space, you know, what do we need to know for those trips that we might might be able to make?
0: Of course, it's one for the uh, extremely wealthy, but uh, how long do you think it'll take before it reaches the level we can go on a weekend holiday?
1: Well, here's the thing. If you go back to the first transatlantic commercial flight, which was in the 1950s, it cost something like $4,000 in today's money. Whereas you can now fly across the Atlantic for about hundred, $100 with Norwegian Air. So if the price comes down at a similar uh, rate to that, then in a few decades' time, we could be looking at costing maybe fifteen to $20,000, which you know, is still a lot of money, but it's the sort of money people spend on a car or a holiday or around-the-world cruise. Um, so then brings it into the, the arena for a lot more people rather than the, the $200,000 that, uh, that it costs to start with. So I'm still holding out hope that in, uh, say, 30 years' time the price will have come down to the point where I can afford to go for the day. Could have the first space tourist going to the moon in the next few years. That's the plan, at least. Uh, SpaceX have come out in the last month or so, uh, saying that a a Japanese billionaire is paid to send not only himself, but a handful of artists that he's going to pick to go around the moon. So the timescale is quite ambitious. They think in about five years. Normally, SpaceX miss their targets in terms of time, but they do hit them eventually. So, you know, in 10 years' time, we're the first paying tourists around the moon. And, and then what can follow from that is, is more and more of us making that trip. So, you know, in 100 years' time, are we going to have regular cruises around the moon for a week? I can see that as a definite possibility.
0: The push from private industry is really the thing that's uh, driving it. Do you think go- governments should uh, start getting back involved, collaboration of both?
1: I think a collaboration of both is good. I, when we, in the book, I talk at the end in the conclusion about the kind of future of space that we want to build for ourselves now i'm quite keen on on companies like spacex i think they're doing great things other people can be quite down on them and they say you know isn't this rampant capitalism spreading into space isn't it going to kind of spread the worst of us across the solar system and so it'd be nice to have a balance of the two but at the same time government's are always backed by uh, voters and therefore taxpayers and so if, if you're spending if you're running on a ticket of spending tax dollars on on space travel it's been shown to be pretty hard to get elected on that ticket. So, uh, yeah, it needs to be a hard balance of the two, I think.
0: What is it uh, that we really need to know then about uh, living in space? Well,
1: some of it can be incredibly basic. So just the normal things that you have to do day to day, which, you know, you find pretty easy on the Earth. Washing, cooking, cleaning, breathing, sleeping, eating. Now, some of those things can get quite difficult in space. So you have to watch what you eat. For example, you can't have uh, bread or toast because uh, they create crumbs and the crumbs float around and would get in sensitive equipment. So they tend to go for tortilla wraps instead, which uh, don't create as many crumbs. Same for things like salt and pepper. You can't have powdered salt and pepper. Imagine if the pepper floats and gets into your eyes, it would be pretty nasty. So they have to have liquid salt and pepper. Um, but things like going to the toilet, that's the one everyone always, you know, always cares about. You know, things float in space and that means everything floats. So you have to be quite careful about how you get rid of and manage, manage human waste. But I think the two, the two key things we have to solve, you know, we can do those things already. The two things we have to solve if we're going to be serious about sending people to, to the moon and to Mars on a regular basis. Firstly, one is radiation. So once you get away from the protective cocoon of the Earth, our atmosphere uh, and our magnetic field, then you're open to radiation from the sun and other stars in the galaxy. And that can cause some pretty nasty side effects for for your biology. So ranging from radiation sickness to cancer or increased risk of cancer, cataracts, uh, even death if it's a particularly high dose. So we need a way of protecting astronauts from that radiation, which we don't really have yet. And the other one is psychology, particularly if we're talking about Mars, because humans just have never been that isolated before to be imagine what it'd be like halfway to mars seven months journey you're three and a half months in you can't see the earth back home you're too far away you can't see mars yet because you're not near enough so you're stranded in interplanetary space with the same people in the same tin can we just don't know yet what effect that's going to have on the human psyche uh, and we're starting to experiment to try and get a handle on what that might be like, but when I I give talks about this kind of thing, um, I say that I think the biggest obstacle to uh, sending people on long-duration space missions away from low Earth orbit is is psychological rather than technological.
0: Obviously, there are people working on these sorts of things. Do you you think that uh, these things can be solved?
1: Yeah, I mean, most of these technological things we can solve. I mean, if you look at human history, we're very good at solving problems and coming up with solutions. Um, But with the psychology aspect, I think we've just got to try it. We've got to train the astronauts that go. We have to pick the crew very carefully, as they do now already, through psychological testing and to give yourself the best chance of of minimizing those things. But just as with the Apollo mission, until you try it, you just don't know. So the first people who go will have to be guinea pigs, but they'll know that, they'll have signed up for that. But if we can do that, then then yeah, I think our future is definitely interplanetary. And it kind of has to be in a way because we have all our eggs in one basket at the moment. We have humanity on the earth. And if we're serious about maintaining humanity for for the long term, there are any number of things that could could wipe us out on this planet. And so having a settlement, having a colony on another planet gives us that uh, insurance policy if, if the worst should happen. And what I also say though is That doesn't mean that we should give us uh, free reign to mess this planet up further. You know, we shouldn't run this planet into the ground just because we happen to have uh, a stair somewhere else. But we need to uh, have a, a backup plan. At the moment, it's a bit precarious to have humanity all in one place on the same planet.
0: The book itself is very it's beautiful to look at. It has really nice images and the organization of the little sections. So how were these images chosen? How was how this sort of put together in the end to create this guide for space travel?
1: So from the beginning, the idea was to have it as a very visual guide so that, you know, something you really like to look at. And trouble, so few people have been to space that I kind of wanted to get across as best I could as to what it would be like to be in space. So the, you know, the pictures of Earth from orbit are there and they're nice and big and bold. And a lot of the pictures that I picked myself as I was, as I was doing the research. So when I, when I supplied my text to the, to the publishers, I also sent them a list of um, you know, pictures, suggestions that I'd come across. And I was just trying to be as visual and as kind of awe-inspiring as possible.
0: The book is full of these that, that uh, you were surprised by, the one that made you go, wow, this is, I really didn't know this. about.
1: Yeah, they're just the little, little things, really. So, for example, I found out that they make and test astronaut sick bags on the earth beforehand um, but they don't use real human vomit to test the bags for leaks and that kind of stuff they make their own fake vomit out of this concoction uh, a concoction of pureed cottage cheese tomato soup apple juice soy sauce and frozen vegetables uh, and then they see whether the bag leaks they make a better bag for astronaut uh, astronaut bath bags I thought that was, I thought that was uh, amazing they, they could devise their own version of human uh, Of human sick. The other thing was also that just how much they recycle stuff on the the International Space Station. So that includes almost everything they possibly can, from oxygen to uh, even liquid waste. So, human urine, for example, is collected on the space station, is cleaned and treated, and becomes the water you use the next day um, to make your coffee with. And so it's just that kind of um, resourcefulness that I I was reminded of how. uh, how much they use everything. You know, they, they the carbon dioxide, they they scrub it and then they use the recycle uh, combine it to make water and use that water. And you know, every little thing is used as, as much as possible to be as.
0: We are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious, maybe if you have some final words regarding uh, how to live in space.
1: I think you've got to be prepared for the unexpected. Uh, you know, we're talking on the day when for the first time in a long time a Soyuz launch to the International Space Station has uh, has gone awry and the astronauts had to abort. Now, luckily they're safe, but. You know, it kind of reminds us that space travel is is not routine. I think we can get lulled into a full sense of security having seen all these you know, regular trips to space recently. But actually, it's still a big deal, and it's still dangerous. And so you know, even if we're going for leisure, uh, for space tourism, we've always got to have in the back of our mind that you know, our bodies weren't designed to live off-planet. And so we've got to have that in the back of our minds that we're doing something that requires uh, the utmost care and attention.
0: But probably what gives it a bit of the excitement there as well. though.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Space travel is always going to have that kind of air of, of mystery because of that slight, uh, well, more than slight danger side to it.
0: We were just talking with Mr. Colin Stewart. He's the author of How to Live in Space, Everything You Need to Know for the Not-So-Distant Future. And uh, Mr. Stewart, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. It's not, thank you for having me.